Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host. And this week I'm joined by Austin Wagner. Austin, how's it going? Uh, not too bad. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. Uh, I think Luke has earned a, a well-deserved break after finishing the the law school finals for the semester. I'm, I'm sure his brain is mush and he's somewhere down on the coast in Georgia right now. Yeah, from experience, first semester at 1L, you deserve a good month off. So, so we'll let Luke... Uh, sleep on the beach and and listen to us. On this week's show, we're going to uh, recap the Alabama Senate race. Um, So Doug Jones defeated Roy Moore um, in a race to replace Jeff Sessions in the U.S. Senate from Alabama next door to us. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit about that race and a little bit about what we can learn about the governor's race and other statewide races in Georgia coming up next year in the midterms in 2018. Um, And then for our second topic this week, we're going to check in on Washington. The Republicans in the House and the Senate are close to passing a tax reform bill that is going to pass along a lot of tax benefits to the wealthy while eventually increasing taxes on the middle class and only giving them kind of token temporary benefits. Um, It's a really shocking uh, development in policy from my perspective in terms of just how brazen Republicans have been about not really caring about the criticisms that Democrats have laid out against them for the last few years. They've kind of, you know, let their guard down and let people see what their priorities actually are when they're, um, you know, using spending cuts and and tax increases on lower and middle income people to pay for tax cuts for the wealthy. Um, So we're going to talk about that tax bill, where it is as it gets up close to the final stages of the legislative process and what that means for Republicans' chances in the midterms in 2018. And then for our third topic this week, we're going to come back home to Georgia, and we're going to talk about the second major policy release from Stacey Abrams, a Democratic candidate for governor here in Georgia. She released a proposal where she aims to create a new scholarship program for children to help them access childcare options. Uh, this is before pre-K options for kids between birth and, and four years old. She laid out a pretty detailed proposal with some new policy ideas that we're going to work through, and we're going to talk about how those how those are going to play out in the governor's race, both in the Democratic primary and in the general election. First, we will start with the Alabama Senate race. So a week ago today, Democrat Doug Jones defeated Republican and accused child molester and anti-gay theocrat and anti-Muslim bigot Roy Moore in a special election to replace Jeff Sessions in the U.S. Senate. Jones was boosted by big turnout by African-Americans across Alabama's Black Belt, support from college-educated voters in the suburbs of Montgomery, Birmingham, and Huntsville, and depressed turnout from Republicans across rural Alabama. His victory cuts the Republican majority in the Senate to 51-49 and makes it possible, but still a long shot, that Democrats can take both the House and the Senate in the 2018 midterms. Uh, But before we jump into the discussion of of this, uh, here's an exclusive listen to how it all went down last Tuesday night. Well, I guess if this thing comes up short, he can field it and run it out. All right, here we go. 56-yarder. It's got, no, does not have the leg. And Chris Davis takes it in the back of the end zone. He'll run it out to the 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 45. There goes Davis. Oh, my God. Davis is going to run it all the way 
Thomas will go back. He ran it back 109 yards. They're not going to keep him off the field tonight. Holy cow. All right, so Austin, were you surprised by Jones' victory next door in Alabama? I don't want to say I was surprised because I think Roy Moore is just such a bad candidate. Everything about Roy Moore is just, even in Alabama, a lot of people just can't stand Roy Moore for, even before everything came up about the sexual assault issues and um, potential molestation and, you know, everything that's going on about about him now during this election. But even before, there were a lot of issues with him as a person and as a candidate. And I think everyone kind of knew the opportunity was there and it was going to come down to, to turnout and which people decided to come out for a special election that the entire country was focused on. And, you know, as you said in the introduction, there was amazing turnout for the Democrats, especially the, the black community after there had been so much discussion that, you know, they weren't behind Doug Jones. And I think there's still definitely issues to be addressed there. But the turnout was was incredible and a lot more than than what some of the media have been talking about. But also the Republican turnout was was depressed in, in so many places. I know myself and plenty of others were watching the New York Times projected um, vote needle that was, uh, you know, would go back and forth and had some some massive swings when Roy Moore would hit his percent benchmark but the turnout was so low that it didn't make any any difference for him and I think that's really what what happened so surprised not necessarily because I think we knew there was the possibility I don't think it was a it obviously wasn't a guarantee for Jones or Roy Moore I think everyone knew it was probably going to be close so not surprised but you know as far as what it can do going forward that's the bigger question um, but it was wasn't a surprise. I think going into the night, everyone knew this is going to be a close race. Yeah, I was struck by, and and I think that this is a pretty familiar feeling for, for Southerners who spend time in other parts of the country. I was struck by how much it was clear that Alabama voters were really sensitive to how the rest of the country viewed them and in their process of making this decision. I know it's not like Roy Moore voters and, and his diehard fans cared all that much, but in terms of the places where turnout really was boosted in in the black belt in Alabama and in the suburbs of of some of their cities and among college educated voters and in all that it was just clear that they a lot of them you know may have voted for a republican in kind of a normal election or or are probably more sensitive and more appreciative of just sort of generally conservative republican politics but that Roy Moore was just so clearly out of bounds that it not only was I think disgusted a lot of people who, you know, saw his behavior as a big turnoff and especially the things he was accused of as it relates to, you know, a 14 year old girl that, you know, alleged that he molested her when she was only 14 and and the other stuff related to him dating teenagers. And, and the fact that that was something that was kind of like known people in Gats in this town where, where this was happening, they knew that Roy Moore was somebody who was banned from a local mall and somebody who, used to go on dates with teenage girls. It was it was just clear that they wanted to send a message to not only the people, not only the women who had levied these accusations against Moore, but also to other women in the state and and a message to the rest of the country that, 
you know, even in Alabama, this is out of bounds. And, and no matter what people think about whether Alabama is backwards or not or, or whatever, it's a place that's changed a lot in the same way that Georgia's changed a lot, in the same way that the South has changed a lot as a region. Um, and so I, I think we would have seen that result, even if Roy Moore had won by a point. The fact that Moore was even close in that race was a big statement from a lot of Alabama voters that this was unacceptable. But I, it does feel better from a Democratic perspective that not only does that sentiment come through, but it comes through in victory in the same way that, you know, John Ossoff was another picture of Georgia voters really disapproving of Donald Trump and, and bringing that race a lot closer than people thought it might be. But that wasn't also accompanied with a a democratic victory in the way that this one was. Um, So it feels good to win. It always feels better to win. Yeah. I think on that point about how people viewed the state of Alabama, and that was a kind of a big talking point leading up to it. And especially with um, Senator Shelby and his um, statements on the kind of the Sunday shows right before the election and and his discussion of that this is this is a something too far, you know, for him that this isn't this isn't about party, this isn't about anything else. It's just about being, you know, a good person, you know, and the morals that come along with that, regardless of the fact that this is this is the guy on you know his party's with his party's nomination, you know, and how how people should still view Ala Alabamians and and what um, you know what they view as appropriate as well. And, you know, I know Senator Shelby took some heat for, for coming out as strongly as he did against them. But, you know, I think it was good to see, you know, the other senator in the state stand up and, and say that as well and show that this isn't what what Alabama stands for. I think it does speak to, you know, beyond the accusations against Moore and, and this unacceptable behavior. The fact that this was even close is also owed to the fact that you know, Donald Trump is really unpopular. He's even, you know, borderline unpopular in Alabama in the exit polls that were, you know, on TV on election night. I think Trump's approval rating, like approval, disapproval was about even in a state that he won by, I think, over 20 points over Hillary Clinton and in a state that's been plus 20 Republican for a while. Um, The fact that at least among the voters who came out to vote in this Senate special election, they were equally approving and disapproving of Donald Trump. I think it's a really bad sign for him and the Republicans, not only just in Alabama, but in other races that will take place in the midterms and in in Georgia going into next year. I don't know if it's the fact that they, at least to that point, hadn't accomplished anything. We'll, We'll talk about the tax bill that may be considered an accomplishment for Republicans. But yeah, the fact that they hadn't accomplished anything or the fact that this administration has really turned into a reality show that features a culture war and, and not much else. I don't, I think that it's a really bad sign for Republicans going forward that this race was even close and it's going to be difficult for them to not only separate themselves from Roy Moore because Trump endorsed Moore. He tried to do this like tiptoe thing where he tried to hold a rally just across the state line in Pensacola in uh I think it was Pensacola and Florida and the Panhandle right near in the same media market as as Mobile, Alabama. And he tried to sort of have it both ways where he gave a tepid endorsement and then it got a little bit more passionate as the vote got closer, but he never actually campaigned in Alabama. And then the other thing that I think about related to that is a lot of Republicans, both the Republican committee that 
went back into supporting more, back into helping his fundraising operation, and Donald Trump's support of more. I think Democrats still have some room to tie Republicans as the party that endorsed an alleged child molester. And I think that that, as a statement of sort of the values of the Republican Party, it is something is an argument that I think is going to linger and is something they're still going to have to answer for, even though Roy Moore lost this race. Right. I think, you know, people are going to look at it and we'll look back and look at Roy Moore's impact on it. Right. I mean, I think with a different candidate, it may have been closer than we would expect in Alabama and probably wouldn't have led to a Democratic victory. And Roy Moore definitely had an impact on that. But the fact still remains that Trump's approval there, like you said, is is basically breaking even. I mean, we're talking about 50-50 approval in, in the state of Alabama, which you know, for pretty much everyone would be considered one of the safest red states that you could have. So it's not just Roy Moore. It's not just Trump. It's the combination of it. It's the way that everyone handled themselves, the way that we still, the Republicans still backed Roy Moore. And there's a lot that went into it that allowed Doug Jones to win. But the the truth is take Roy Moore out and it still would have been probably a closer race than anyone would have predicted in Alabama before all of this nonsense. And I think that's definitely going to make an impact as we look to to Georgia and what what could potentially happen there. You know, just just on its own, I took a look at what the what the exit poll information was and I had uh, tweeted this out the the night of the election. And like we said in Alabama turnout was a huge thing. But if the exit polling information was the same, you know, if the percentages were basically the same and translated into Georgia, in the same way, 2018 could be a pretty big night for for the Democrats. Um, you know, I, I put it into the model I used for the 2016 election, and you know, had some some turnout for what the what the midterm might look like. And I mean, you're talking about statewide races there, where Democrats are at 49% without considering you know third party vote or or undecided vote here, six uh, percent above above Republicans and. Looking at house races, I mean, you're talking uh, a majority of the house races are basically in toss-up category if those exit poll numbers carry over to Georgia. Now, will they carry over to Georgia? That's that's a bigger question. I mean, we still got, you know, 11 months, basically 12 months before the 2018 election. So so who knows what the, the state of the world is going to be going to be at that point but it shows the opportunity and shows what could potentially happen and i think for democrats it's going to fire everyone up and try to get a lot more candidates on the ballot and and think that you know if this can happen in alabama it can definitely happen in georgia this race is the basically the number one advertisement for your golden rule for georgia democrats isn't it yeah i mean i think so it's like you never know what's going to happen there could be a wave at any time get the candidates on the ballot and you never know who who you're going to be running against and, and what could potentially happen. And if you don't have the candidates, then you don't get to win those races when it turns out that, you know, the guy you're running against has been banned from a mall because he was dating 14 year olds. So get the candidates on the ballot. I mean, that, that's what it is. Give the voters a choice and you never know what's going to happen. And these opportunities are going to be there. Yeah. The, the other takeaway that I took from this, on the Republican side is I think that this is a particularly bad sign for Michael Williams. He's the gubernatorial candidate who's clearly running in the Trump lane. He often calls out Hunter Hill and Casey Cagle for not being supportive enough of Donald Trump. 
Donald Trump jumped into the Alabama race. He endorsed more. He did a, fun, a robocall for more, held a campaign rally just across the state line in Florida and more lost. And I should, I think it should be particularly worrying because more is a similar kind of embattled, you know, being beat up by the liberals in Washington, DC and California and all these celebrities and all this, uh, you know, the kind of persecuted candidate that Trump's base should be rising up to defend. And Michael Williams, although he doesn't have, at least as far as we know, doesn't have the same sort of personal background or or problematic behavior that Roy Moore has had or Donald Trump has had. He is, I think, trying to play this, I'm Trump's number one fan. I'm embattled by the media, the crooked media that doesn't, you know, believe me or believe the the message that Trump's voters are carrying. Those voters didn't show up for Roy Moore. Part of the reason that Roy Moore lost is not only this this big turnout increase among Democratic voters, but it's also depressed turnout among Republican voters. And so I don't know that it says much about the primary. I think it's still possible that if Michael Williams can consolidate the the Trump supporters vote and sort of drive all that support to him in the primary, he might still have a shot to beat the more establishment candidates. But I think it's a really bad sign if he does win the primary for the general because Trump is massively unpopular. And right now his voters aren't you know, rising up to defend him in these less publicized elections. You know, like, I, I agree with you. I think the, the way the primary is going to play out, you know, I think both Democrats have been using this as a uh, as a statement that a Democrat can win in the, the southern states. And I think that's the, the, the best that anyone can really do with it, because you can't you can't easily carry over what happened in Alabama to to Georgia. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out on the Republican side. But I mean, Trump's going to be the overwhelming factor, and I think the the latest, you know, approval numbers that the public approval numbers have seen of Trump in the state of Georgia are are basically even in 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 Georgia. They've been decreasing since he since he won. I don't know. I mean, I think it's going to be the overwhelming force, and who knows how it plays. And it's going to depend on if there are potential victories that Trump and the Republicans can claim, um, or if the the victories that they do claim really seem to be victories for the voters and what the approval is of it there. It's hard to know how any election in another state, even a bordering state, what it's going to do in, in Georgia in another 12 months, basically. There's so many factors that go into it. And I think it's interesting to, to, to look at and look at what the exit polls can do, but Georgia's different and we're going to have to talk about Georgia issues, not Alabama issues. And we don't have a Roy Moore on the ballot. Probably, um, we never know, but who knows? I, th- I think the biggest thing is that the Republican stronghold in these southern states is definitely being hurt, potentially hurt by Trump, and the opportunity is there for the Democrats to take seats, to take statewide races. Um, you know, there's definitely the potential in Georgia for it to be similar to what happened in Virginia. I think Alabama shows that it can really happen in Georgia. So I think to kind of wrap it up, Alabama shows there's opportunity in Georgia. Whether that comes to fruition and things really change in Georgia will depend on the candidates and the way we run things, but the opportunity's there. Stacey Evans and Stacey Abrams, the two Democratic candidates for governor, um, they have very different philosophies in terms of how 
in terms of what coalition they can turn out to be to have a winning coalition against the Republicans in November um, and win the governor's mansion. Stacey Evans favors a strategy where she tries to turn out rural whites that may be disaffected with Donald Trump, but may have voted for him in 2016, while Stacey Abrams is trying to recreate some of the Obama coalition, but really leaning into increasing turnout and increasing voter registration numbers for African Americans and other voters of color. Um, Is there anything in this Alabama result that would lend towards one or the other's philosophy in this race and in the the theory that they have about a Democrat winning the whole thing next year? I mean, there's parts to it there. Just off the bat, I'll say, and I think I've said this before, is that I'm not sure this is entirely in either or situation. I don't think these strategies are necessarily mutually exclusive. Like we have to do one and not the other. Um, I think the reality is, is if a Georgia is going to win, sorry, if a Democrat's going to win in Georgia, we're going to have to do both of those things. Uh, there's a few big takeaways in Alabama as far as turnout is concerned. One is that the black turnout was massive, um, especially black women who we can talk about have been ignored plenty of times in the Democratic Party. That's obviously going to be a major part of, of what needs to happen in, in Georgia as well. We see the same kind of numbers that we saw in Alabama. We see the same thing in Georgia, that the foundation of the Democratic Party in in Georgia is probably best defined as as black women. So that's definitely going to be something that, that we can look at as well. And what do we do to make sure that whatever candidate we have as a Democrat, and not just the governor candidate, but the other statewide races and our state house races, what are we doing to make sure we get into the black community and show that this isn't just about getting them out to vote, but that we're going to do something for the community itself? I think that's something to take away. The other thing is that the turnout in Alabama and in other places, but I, I saw a chart just recently, and honestly, I can't remember where it was from right now, but the turnout in higher educated um, counties has increased dramatically since since 2014. So you look at the Alabama race, and basically the more educated the county is, the more the turnout has increased. And those same counties are voting much more for the Democratic candidates than they are the Republican candidates. So I think there's that part of it, too. And we've seen that in Georgia a little bit in some of these special elections. I think you could look at potentially what happened in in Athens with the state house races um, in 117 and, and 119. So I, I think there's something to, to take away from that as well. Um, improving turnout in those places is definitely going to help Democrats as well. As far as the, the rural kind of white argument that, that Evans has, I'm not sure there's as much to be said in from the Alabama race that can that can carry over. But I, that's not to say that that's not a potential strategy that can work. Like I said, I think this isn't a we go this way or we go that way. I think if we're going to be successful as Democrats in the state of Georgia, it's got to be a both and situation where we're going after a lot of different groups and, you know, the big tent kind of philosophy, right, where we're getting a lot of people to come together and make this coalition to show that our policies are really going to help everyone across the state. And we've got to show how it affects certain communities in different ways, of course. But I think the both and strategy is what's really going to happen. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how much both Evans and Abrams lean on this case 
in terms of differentiating themselves from one another. I kind of thought that that would be a big fault line between the two, but they haven't really pushed it in the way that I thought. And I think that if you look back at the last three midterm elections, they were definitely solid reactions to the president in power. You have Democrats taking over the Congress again in 2006 as George Bush struggles towards the end of his presidency with the Iraq war and the the coming economic collapse that that hasn't quite happened yet. But then you also have a bunch of backlash to Barack Obama in both of the midterm elections that that were, occurred during his administration. I mean, I think that the the president really does drive a lot of the reaction and the enthusiasm among voters during the midterms. And so I don't know that there really is a tangible difference between the strategy that either Evans or Abrams is putting forward. And, and I, I think that I, I would, I would push on them a little more to say, to sort of show their work and prove that you really can only win going Evans way or really can only win going Abrams way. I think what you're actually going to find is if a Democrat wins the governor's race in 2018, it's, it's going to be, like you said, it's going to be both. And um, the candidates who, whoever it is, is going to make, big gains among African-American voters and voters of color. And the fact that Abrams has done all this work to register these voters may end up being something that would help Evans win the governor's race, kind of ironically, if she's the one that comes out of the primary, because, you know, the message at that point is going to be the way, you know, your vote in the midterm is a vote to resist Donald Trump. And I don't think it really is going to matter who the, who the democratic candidate is. I think the, the lesson out of Virginia, some of the Virginia voters were saying that, you know, we were voting for whoever the Democrat was not even knowing who they were because we're sick and tired of what's going on in Washington. Well, yeah, let's talk about the tax plan, particularly the way the Republicans should be talking about the tax plan. So last Friday evening, Republicans released the final version of their tax overhaul proposal, the conference agreement, which was basically unified similar versions of the bill that passed the house and the Senate earlier this fall it keeps the basic structure of the bill that they've been considering the whole time. It permanently cuts the corporate tax rate, permanently cuts taxes on owners of pass-through businesses, and temporarily reduces taxes for middle-class earners before increasing them further down the line. The proposal is expected to add about a trillion and a half dollars to the national deficit and would add over two trillion if not for budget gimmicks like temporary sunsets of some of the provisions And models across the ideological spectrum show that the plan would only slightly increase economic growth while supercharging income and wealth inequality and setting the stage for spending cuts on programs that serve lower and middle income people. Oh, and they're also taking a shot at Obamacare by repealing the mandate that supports healthy Obamacare risk pools. So basically what they're doing is raising taxes on the middle class, letting 13 million people lose health insurance, and planning to cut spending on poverty programs, all to finance a tax cut for the wealthy. This was something that makes the Monopoly man look like Bernie Sanders. So Austin, how excited are you for the truly forgotten men of America, wealthy stock traders and stockholders and corporate executives who are getting a big Christmas present from Republicans in Washington? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a... It's a great day to be a Republican donor right now and be these these corporate executives who have already said that they're not going to pass on this and you know this new money onto uh, their employees and bring the investment back it'll all pretty much go to the you know the other forgotten men the, the shareholders of all these places so I mean it's just amazing to me that this is 
this is where we're at. It shouldn't really surprise me. Um, I think the biggest thing is that it falls right into the way Democrats have been framing the Republican view on taxes for such a long time, is that this really is just a big kickback for all the donors and pretty much all the you know Republican senators and congressmen themselves and their own businesses that are going to get benefits from this. Of course, yes, it helps the Trump family greatly. In fact, there are some special provisions for office and, and real estate and apartments and many of the businesses that the Trump family owns themselves. So there's that part of it as well. But take out the Trumps and this is just exactly what the Democrats have been criticizing the Republicans for being as raising taxes on everyone else to make tax cuts for the wealthy. You know, and, and the other thing is I'm going to go make myself an LLC and get paid that way so that I can pass through all my income to myself because that's what's going to happen. Yeah, it is amazing to me that they have basically sort of given up the game and accepted the criticism that liberals have levied against them. I think at times liberals probably levied some relatively unfair criticisms against Mitt Romney in this same vein when he was running for president in 2012. But instead of sort of trying to combat that image and that impression that Democrats were trying to make about Republican politicians, they sort of just like leaned right into it and said, okay, that's exactly who we are. And it was amazing how transparent they were throughout the entire process that this was the driving force behind this was complaints from their donor base. And the fact that if they cut taxes for a bunch of wealthy people, it was going to increase and improve their fundraising going into 2018, because a these people would have more money to give. And they would be the ones who got special treatment by the Republicans in Washington. It's doubly amazing because it's sort of hard to sort of take Trump at his word, but a lot of Republican voters did. And they saw in Donald Trump, a guy who had been, you know, had done deals in wall street and had been a part of this sort of New York financier life and had gotten donations from Republicans and Democrats and built and bent them over backwards to his will. All these things he said about being a great deal maker and controlling all these politicians and how he was then going to turn around and do all that stuff for the forgotten man and the forgotten woman. And this is none of that at all. It is absolutely, absolutely none of that. And Ezra Klein wrote about how this entire process and the outcome of the tax bill was really a betrayal of the Republican voters that sent Donald Trump to Washington to drain the swamp and bring benefits to, you know, these long suffering communities of, of white folks in rural America who, who have been left behind by the global economy. And it's just amazing that it, it's none of that. And Trump has ceded basically all of his influence in this process to congressional Republicans who are doing exactly what they said they would do for the last 10 years, that they would cut taxes on wealthy people and, and cut spending on programs that help lower and middle income people. Yeah, I mean, I think this this is exactly what Paul Ryan's been talking about since anyone ever heard of, of Paul Ryan was that I'm going to put taxes on a postcard or make them so easy that you can just do them on a postcard. And of course, the core tenets of trickle-down economics and we're going to cut taxes on the corporations and wealthy individuals and that'll make its way down somehow to you know the workers who aren't even making a, a living wage and that's exactly what this is i mean and, and the fact of the matter is is that no one's really even trying to to really 
hide that now. It's still kind of being played out as some middle class tax cut. And there are, you know, we get to have fun with what average means, right? With, you know, the average family will have this much of a tax cut, but how much of that is being skewed by all the, you know, wealthy Americans that will see an even larger tax cut. You know, it's the the anecdote somebody gave. It's like, well, I give, there's 10 people. I give one person 10 apples and the average person gets one apple. It's like, well, the other nine people aren't going to care about what the average says. They're going to care about the fact that they didn't actually get an apple. So what does that really mean? But I think, you know, uh, there's the quote from, from Mark Sanford from South Carolina who said, uh, you know, the bill has basically been mislabeled. I think what he exactly said is, you know, from a truth and advertising standpoint, it would have been a lot simpler if we just acknowledge reality on this bill, which is it's fundamentally a corporate tax reduction and restructuring bill, period. I think they're particularly concerned about innuendo and what that might mean. So it was labeled as a middle class tax cut. And that's exactly what this is. It was it was presented as, oh, we're going to cut taxes on the middle class because that's what everyone's supposed to say is that we're going to cut taxes on the middle class. That's exactly the playbook from from everyone. But the reality is, is it comes down to it's it's the same tenets of trickle down economics. We're going to cut taxes on corporations. And that's exactly what it is. And everyone knows it. And this game that we're playing about what that really means you know it's just it's just ridiculous i mean it's a corporate tax cut and that's that's what it is own it and and go forward with it and and sell it on that and then the fact that they're not being honest with it, i think is part of the reason that the approval rating is so is so bad with this of course that probably won't make a difference because this is exactly what paul ryan has dreamed of and you know i'm sure he has dreams of postcards with taxes on them and this is this is what he gets and he's done and then he'll leave in 2018 and he gets to say, I did my taxes. That's it. I finally fulfilled my wonky dream. Well, you still won't be able to file your taxes on a postcard because of this. But the the most striking example of how this is a real demonstration of Republican priorities in this process right now is that towards the end of this process, when they were doing these conference committee negotiations behind closed doors, Marco Rubio tried to get an increase in the child tax credit brought into this bill. Um, and this is an in, this is a credit that goes to primarily lower and middle income people. Um, and he wanted to, instead of lowering the corporate rate to 20%, lower it to just under 21% and then use that 1% difference to fund an increase in the child tax credit. And he was rebuffed by Senate Republican leadership saying that, oh, they couldn't afford to do this. We had been committed to doing a 20% corporate tax rate in the final version of this bill. Well, it turns out once they emerge from the conference agreement, you're, you really are only dropping the corporate rate to 21% instead of 20%. And they took the revenue of from that change to lower the top individual marginal tax rate so that wealthy individuals who... Uh, you know, currently pay a rate, I think somewhere above 35%, they got another, I think, point and a half reduction. So instead of using the money from upping the corporate tax a hair, and taking that money and using it for a child tax credit, they used it to just lower taxes on wealthy people, um, instead of taking the amendment that Rubio wanted. And he pushed a little bit, and they gave him sort of half of what he wanted eventually. But he kind of let it go. He wasn't ready to derail the whole process over over the child tax credit. And, and nobody really was because it's just very clear that lower and middle income people are not the priority 
of Republicans as they consider this tax reform, um, they really are just trying to fulfill the whims of their donors in the hopes that when they, you know, get run out of Washington by the, the, the coming wave against the president in this, in this Congress, that they can go get a cushy lobbying job over on K street and, and make a lot of money and get paid back for this vote that they're taking. This is a, a lead into probably a bigger, a bigger discussion here. It's the, the hypocrisy that we see on what this does to the debt. Um, you know, we see and hear Republicans talk constantly about the Republicans, or sorry, the, the Republicans say that the Democrats are just going to spend and spend and spend and increase the national debt and they don't care and they're just going to keep borrowing money and run our country into the ground with the weight of our of our debt. But of course, when we take a look at the numbers on this bill, um, it looks like it's probably going to add over a trillion dollars to the debt in order to fund these tax cuts to corporations. So, and the cuts aren't going to pay for themselves. You know, the, the the best case scenario for the conservative estimates is that it's not going to pay for itself. So, how do, how do we look at the Republicans with their debt argument when they know this bill is likely going to add to the debt? Yes, the argument is that somehow... The corporations who have already said they're not going to pass this investment along on to, to anyone other than their own shareholders, that somehow these corporations, it'll trickle down and make its way into the middle class and pay for itself some abstract way there. It doesn't seem like that's going to happen. It's never really happened in the past. We can have a debate about what that is and have a lot of fun with the Laffer curve and whatever. But the reality is, is that Republicans have campaigned on, we shouldn't raise the debt and we need to cut our spending. We need to do all this. And this is going to raise the debt. So how do we deal with that going forward? How do the Democrats deal with the fact that the apparent hypocrisy in the Republican party doesn't matter? Are, are the voters going to see this and finally decide that this, they're not going to take it anymore, that they're going to look at this and go, you guys are just going to say whatever you can to appease the donors that, you know, the big money donors that are going to keep funding your campaigns and funding your war chests, that you're just going to do whatever you need to do and appease them and say whatever you need to say to get elected? Or is it not going to matter? Are we going to be in the same place where the hypocrisy doesn't mean anything more? Are we going to be in a place, again, where truth depends on who said it? You know, are we going to label everything fake news and this is just going to be another part of that you know how do we campaign in a world where we've always had problems with politicians campaigning and telling the truth and what does the truth mean to a politician but it's even worse now and and how do we deal with that how, how do we push back with facts when the truth depends on who the speaker is well i think what what i think you are going to find is that Democrats are probably going to look back at the Obama administration and feel kind of silly for being sensitive to some of these deficit and debt concerns. You know, Barack Obama bent over backwards to try to get respect from Republicans and have them be working partners, and he never really got any good faith effort out of them in return. Um, he tried to do it when he passed the Affordable Care Act and, and basically structured the whole thing around a plan Republicans came up with. 
He tried to do it after the midterms in 2010, where they took up deficit reduction as one of their primary goals, uh, when really that in terms of the economy and coming back from the Great Recession, that wasn't really something that was the best policy prescription at the time. But all of this was meant to show that they could, that Democrats could be serious and responsible fiscally and and responsive to concerns over the debt, which is sort of the the founding mantra behind the Tea Party, in the hopes that then Republicans would be willing to then maybe spend money on things that Democrats could make a good case for and say this is a good investment in our in our children or in our environment or in our transportation in our future, and he never got willing partners out of Republicans on that. So I think the thing that you're going to see is the next Democratic president is probably not going to ask his members of Congress to stress over pay-fors and making sure that every little fiscal end is really buttoned up like Barack Obama tried to. And and they're not going to be responsive to concerns over the debt, I think, because, you know, I don't, I don't know. They just it doesn't earn you respect in a working relationship with the Republicans. They they do it when it makes sense for them politically to try to attack things that Democrats are trying to do that they don't like, but then they turn around when they're back in power and they either use deficit financing to finance tax cuts for wealthy people or they use it to pay for a, a misguided war in Iraq. Um they also used it to pay for the expansion of the Medicare drug program during the Bush administration. They basically put that whole thing on the nation's credit card. And, you know, even though there were some, there's some merit to that, they are only fiscally responsible when they're out of power. And I think Democrats would be smart to just stop taking the debate and ceding the fiscal responsibility ground to Republicans when they can just look back at the previous two administrations. This is two completely different ideologically focused administrations, Congresses that occurred in two completely different times. um, And they did the same thing. They ran up the debt for things that the American people don't want. Um, And so I think they would be better off to not take the bait and, and to just move forward, arguing the policies, the proposals that they want to pass and arguing them on the merits and then letting the people decide if, if, you know, if they like what Democrats are selling, because they're not going to find willing partners on the other side of the aisle. Yeah, I think the thing that it scares me with this is that it just pushes everyone further away from ever working together. I mean, I'm not like you said, I don't think there's been equal partners on the other side here. And to be fair, I mean, there's obviously hypocrisy on, on both sides and how we campaign versus how we do things, whether we're in and out of power. And some of that's political games and Whatever, I think we need to, to be careful about how we do all of this. Because if we keep pushing everyone away, and now I think we need to hold firm to our our beliefs, but if we keep pushing everyone away, then there's never going to be a time that we're going to try to get stuff done where we do agree on things. You know, there, there are definite things that could potentially get done in, in Congress, in state houses around the country, if the two sides wanted to work together. I look at how many times uh, we've looked at potentially criminal justice reform and we see people working across the aisle on criminal justice reform. And there there is some serious movement from, from both sides that, that could happen. But I think we're so scared to to do that on anything because we know on almost every other issue, no one's going to want to come close to each other because 
we're in a situation like this where it doesn't matter. We're just going to say one thing when we're out of power and the other when we're in power and can make the rules. And I don't know. That's just a, a scary state for me politically going forward. I mean, I understand how it can work and, and what needs to happen. And we need to hold firm to what we believe and define ourselves based on our, our policy stances and, and, and what we believe is going to be best for the country and or the state, depending on who our constituents are. But I just worry it means that we're never going to get things done where we actually agree. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Like I said, this is this is part of a, a big discussion on, on what we can do to try to eliminate some of this. Um, some of this just hatred really on both sides um, and the vitriol that we see coming in both directions and we have so many arguments and so many fights with with people who don't agree with us and, and we fail to have the conversations with people who are different than us and understand what we can do going forward to try to get these things where we agree you know get them done and 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 make some real changes for the real people who aren't sitting in you know the fancy state capitals or the u.s capital and you know, make a difference for the real people who are out there working every day and going out there and voting for people who they believe might actually do something for them, but might not ever get done because this is the kind of stuff that happens. Let's bring a little Georgia tie into this. Um, So there is a policy idea out there that would be a good use of tax cuts, particularly for low income people to put more money in their pocket and you know, help them out financially. And that's um, the Georgia work credit that's being discussed by the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute right now. And that is a policy that would provide a bottom up tax cut to about a million Georgia families. The biggest benefits of this proposal would go to people making between 10 and $24,000 a year. And the benefit would extend up to $50,000 a year for families with children. Um, This is a policy that's only available to people who work. And it's a policy that would create a lot of economic activity in the state because it puts a lot of money into the pockets of people who don't already have much. And so they have a lot of reason to spend the money that they make because they basically need it to get by. And so it's a great way to create economic opportunity for low-income people and to boost the state's economy at the same time. This is the kind of thing that you could have seen on the national level, if Republicans wanted to boost the state or boost the national federal earned income tax credit um, to put more money in the hands of working people. We talked a little bit about the child tax credit, too, that they kind of halfway gave Marco Rubio a little something on. This is just the reason that we are not talking about this right now or the reason that we're talking about this at the end of this long segment is that this does not represent the priorities of the party that's currently in power. Um, and this is a place where I think Democrats should work to shift the conversation around how do you do taxes and budgets and government programs in a way that supports low-income people and their economic security over the needs of shareholders and other people who just are going to use that money to buy another yacht. This could have easily been presented on a national scale um, and would have probably been one of the Democrats' biggest fears, right, is that Trump and company decided to come around and work at taxes like this and actually help low-income families and make a difference for those that really need the help rather than for the donor class and corporations and those who've already said they're not going to trickle down the benefit to the low-income families. So 
this could have happened, and I think it's something that we need to talk about. And it's, I do think the Democrats need to shift the discussion to what they would do if they were in power, both in Georgia and on a federal level. You know, th- th- this is what we need. We, we the Georgia Democrats need to be able to define themselves as that. This is the kind of stuff that we're going to do, and this is what we're going to fight for. You know, especially looking at Georgia, this could be something that the Georgia Democrats could potentially get around and and flesh out and figure out how this this could work and define ourselves as the party that's really going to fight for low income families. And this is how we're going to do it. Now, we can't just come out and say we don't like what the Republicans are doing. Look, they're just benefiting themselves. But when it turns around and we have the question of what are you really going to do? This could be it. This could be one of those things, and I think it's a potential opportunity for Democrats to, to define what the alternative would be should they get elected and get the majority. So let's talk about one candidate that's trying to define the alternative for Georgia Democrats, and that's Stacey Abrams. Last month, she released a child care proposal which aims to increase the affordability of child care for low- and middle-income families in Georgia. The primary component of this plan is the establishment of the Bold Start Scholarship Program. This allows families making between seven or spending between seven and ten percent of their income on child care for their child to qualify for a scholarship that would help pay for care in a center based setting. Basically, the state would pay, you know, in a similar structure to the Hope Scholarship, the state would pay for children to, to access child care, sort of similar to a program that uh, a limited number of parents qualify for right now. Another element of this proposal is to create a tax credit for uh, child care service employees who go and do some sort of continuing education to further their experience and their education in early childhood development. This is a tax credit of $1,000 that they could get for every time that they um, do some sort of new degree level or enhance their experience. Um, to in It aims to get more quality, highly educated individuals working in childcare in Georgia. And then it has some other smaller elements, um, including the establishment of a fund that would buy robotics kits for after-school programs across the state to try to induce uh, women and children of color into pursuing uh, STEAM fields. This is science, science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. Um, trying to get in, trying to get children started early on these fields where there's a high demand for uh, employees in this area, um, and these are high-paying, very good jobs that children can get prepared for very early in their academic career by finding out you know, that they love science and math and in participating in programs that traditionally students, particularly students in low income areas have not had a lot of access to. So Austin, what's your just your first thought in this this child care proposal? Um, and, and what signal does Abram send by, you know, the first proposal that we talked about, she focused on green energy jobs. Now she's looking at increasing the affordability of child care for uh, lower and middle income families in Georgia. What do you think about the signal these policy markers send? Uh, I'd say that my first thought on it as the you know father of a three and a four year old is that I wish something less like this existed to help with to help with child care. You know, it's it can be a debilitating cost for for plenty of people. And, 
I mean, I know how expensive it is, and it's definitely something that's that's needed. And I think this is a good first step in the discussion on what the best way to do that is. Um, as far as signaling, I think that this is Abrams trying to show that she can she can present this type of a plan that I think is fairly fairly moderate in a lot of ways. That this is a general election type policy plan. This is something that says that uh, we could probably win some Republican votes with this type of a plan. Um, this is potentially working with, with both sides to make a early childhood education plan work. Um, I don't think this is as progressive as she could have done. You know, she's, she's not calling for, you know, just completely free pre-K or completely free preschool. Uh, she's not calling for that. This would be a, a partial scholarship that's based on how much money you're spending on it. So, you know, basically a, a means-tested scholarship for early childhood education. You know, if you're spending more than 7 to 10% on your income on childcare, then you can bring it down to within that range. I think the 7 to 10% is just that's the wiggle room in the in the plan on how far we're going to go. Is it 7% of your family income that you're spending or does it have to be all the way up to 10%? Um, I think that'll come down to you know the the accounting on the bill and what what needs to happen. But you know, still looking at capping this as a as a portion of what you're spending, similar to I think many of us with with student loans understand with income based repayment and the various models there and, and capping it as a certain percentage of what our what our income is. You know, it basically does this for for early childhood education. My feeling on this is that this is the type of plan I would expect that if a candidate had come out with a more progressive plan. Now, this is might what come out, what might have come out of a compromise to get it passed through the General Assembly. Um, I don't think it's necessarily bad in that way. I think it's something that could potentially get passed, and it's not necessarily a bad compromise. Um, there's a lot of good parts to this, and I think a good a good first step for what a state like Georgia would be able to do. But I think this is her potentially signaling that, you know, this is this is a general election type plan. You know, this isn't a, I need this to fire up the progressive base and, and win the primary. This is, I think I'm going to be the nominee. We're going to get through. This is a general election plan that can scare some Republicans potentially and bring over some votes. That's a, that's a moderate plan that could actually get passed. I think the other thing about this plan is it, it demonstrates what we also saw in the, the green energy jobs program and that this is a very comprehensive look at the problem of childcare not being accessible for too many families in the state of Georgia. It not only looks at the affordability perspective from, from the parent and the family's perspective, this scholarship would presumably make, if you qualify for it, it would basically pay for you to send your child off to childcare there. These programs typically have some sort of family copay amount. And so there will still probably be some sort of commitment from the parents financially to, to help pay for children's education, but it, it is typically capped at a percentage of your income. Um, and it is something that is, is generally affordable. Could the, the family contribution could probably be lower 
Um, and maybe that's something that would come about in terms of how the final details of this work out. But not only does it consider affordability, it also considers the supply of childcare. So it's very difficult for families who work non-traditional hours to access childcare. There's not a ton of childcare services that are open, like in the evenings, if you work late or early mornings. Um, it, it really is built around, largely built around the nine to five work schedule. And so it does limit accessibility for parents who have to work non-traditional schedules um, to also have consistent childcare for their children while they're working. Um, so another element of this is she wants to, as governor, partner with you know uh, financial institutions like credit unions to help people who want to start childcare facilities get some of the financing that they need up front um, and get good terms on those loans to to help them basically build a small business. She's she's thinking of it not only from the affordability perspective, but from the supply perspective. And then she's also considering the the quality of the child care in this instance, the the tax credit that she lays out for professional development for uh, child care workers um, is something that aims to increase the salary and the take home pay of child care workers. And this was the part that I thought was interesting, but I think could use a little more work um, or a little more clarity into how it's going to be implemented. The tax credit amount that's available to child care workers under this proposal is $1,000. Um, there's already a program that exists called the DECAL Scholars Program, and that's run by DECAL, which is the children's, the early children's education department in Georgia. Um, that already exists and, and provides some financial assistance, um, although pretty minimal right now. Um, there is a tax credit that childcare workers can get for continuing education, but it is more limited than what Abrams is proposing. And her plan calls for a living wage for all childcare workers, um, which right now they you know, childcare workers could be paid as little as like $13,000 a year, which is even less than we pay our state legislators, which is another outrage I can talk about later. But this would aim to increase some of the take home pay, but it does not get to the living wage conversation that I think she wants to have about this plan. A place where she hasn't filled in a lot of detail and, and she told reporters about this on a press call um, that I attended last week, a place where there could be more discussion around pay for childcare workers is the reimbursement structure that the state uses to pay childcare facilities and childcare providers. And her proposal doesn't really delineate what the reimbursement structure is going to be. So right now, Georgia pays childcare providers between 20 and 35% of what's called the market rate for childcare. Um, and the ideal market rate that you would pay childcare providers is about 75% of the market rate because you can get a little bit of a discount when this when the state is paying for a lot of people to receive childcare. But if you're only paying 20 to 35% of the market rate and not something higher, you're giving childcare providers very little resources to work with and that is going to degrade the quality of the childcare that they're able to provide. And so 
a mechanism that she has in this proposal is to increase those reimbursement rates to closer to the market rate. And then child care providers can use that money to pay higher salaries to their staff, to folks that work there, and to attract higher quality employees to provide, to be the workers in these child care facilities. Um, and in the press call, she basically told us that, you know, she's kind of looking at everything in that area um, and trying to figure out they're sort of still kind of working out the numbers in terms of what they can pay and what they can pay as a reimbursement rate and how many children they can cover under the scholarship for the, the cost that she's laid out, which is $250 million. But I would be interested in a, in a, a more robust discussion around reimbursement rates and how that sets up the quality of childcare that's provided, because that I think is going to be sort of the real concrete policy implication that comes out of this proposal is how does the state drive quality improvement of childcare programs? And this bold start, this bold start scholarship program is potentially an excellent tool to do that if used properly. Yeah, I think, you know, we can, we'll focus a lot on, you know, the big chunk of money that's going to be for the, for the bold start scholarship. But, but these other parts are, are just as important. Like you said, is, is how do we not just make it affordable, you know, we can make it affordable and not have as good of childcare as we could potentially have. And that solves, you know, maybe one part of the problem, but that's not the end goal, right? I mean, the end goal is to make affordable, high quality childcare. So we've got to work on that, the high quality part as well. And I think, you know, I mean, I love these policy discussions as much as you do. I think, Kyle, I, I think they're important. I think we should have more of them. I think the voters should be able to know more about real details of policies. I know so much of the political landscape is just messaging and talking and finding the little sound bites that we can we can get. But I think this stuff is really important. And I think that's one really big takeaway from this is that we've taken that the, the Abrams campaign has taken the time to put put all of this out um, and, and, and go through a, a relatively comprehensive plan. I mean, I think there's there's definitely things, all of what you just, just spoke to, of what can be done to potentially enhance this, to make it a little bit more robust and, and deal with some of the some of the other issues. But I think this is this is definitely a good I think I said earlier, a good first step in the the conversation about what we can do to increase the, the quality of childcare and and make childcare more affordable. The other interesting thing here, um, to get into a little bit of the discussion of how she's going to pay for this proposal, she lays out that she wants to eliminate the Student Scholarship Organization program and take the $58 million of foregone tax revenue that the state doesn't receive because of donations private individuals make to scholarship organizations for children to attend private schools instead of public schools. She wants to take the money from that program and move it into this child care program but Republicans in the legislature have wanted to basically triple the size of this scholarship program in recent years. They want to give up upwards of $150 million of foregone tax revenue to allow students to attend private schools instead of public schools. Abrams picks this program out as a pay for, for her proposal. And I don't think that she's going to find very much support among Republicans in the legislature to get rid of that program and instead pay for childcare. 
because Republicans have sought to expand that program. So what do you think of her, you know, putting in this sort of relatively moderate or or straightforward proposal that on its own could probably get some Republican votes, um, given how much even Republicans at times can defend the state's pre-K program that's funded by the lottery and can accept investments in early childhood as quality things government should do. How do you, how do you feel about her picking this potential political fight over the student scholarship organizations to pay for this proposal? Right. I mean, I think this is, this is the spot where the fight will happen. Like you said, the the rest of it is not, not that controversial. I mean, I think there's people that are definitely going to push back on it and say that this isn't the government's role and et cetera. But where the money is going to come from is going to be, be the fight. I mean, it's, it's part of maybe tangentially part of the, the primary discussion as well, as far as education and, you know, the, the, the voucher discussion that we've had between the candidates and, and what needs to, to happen there and what's, what's the appropriate way to deal with, to deal with that and deal with, um, you know, failing public schools is that, is that vouchers to, to send money other places. So, I mean, this might be part of a, a primary fight as well about what we should be doing as far as using somewhat using government funds for private education. Um, obviously this, this scholarship program is, is a little bit different given that it's a tax credits, um, you know, and benefits for, for donating to these private scholarship programs. Um, I think it's an interesting place to, to try to get the, the money from again, especially given the discussion and some of the framing of the, the democratic primary, again, showing that we're, we're going after the government, helping out the private schools, um, rather than spending the same money on public schools and, um, early education. I mean, I, I think this is, this is probably where she's wanting to pick the political fight where it's, you know, the rest of this is, is pretty reasonable. So we should help our kids and help the next generation have quality and affordable childcare. And to do that, we don't need to give tax breaks for those giving money for scholarships to private schools because we don't need to, we should be focusing on the low income families rather than those that are sending their kids to private school. I mean, I could see the messaging and see the, see the argument there. I think this is where it's going to hit a, hit a road bump, especially if, um, you know, if we had a Democratic governor, if we had a, you know, Governor Abrams and a Republican majority still, I don't, I don't think she's going to get as many Republican votes if this is where the money's coming from. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. I think I will here put my my usual plug that it's good that candidates do policy proposals like these and, and can demonstrate that they have some comprehensive thinking about significant policy problems that face the state. And, and I hope that Stacey Evans and the candidates on the Republican side, Williams and Hill and Cagle and Kemp, um, and now Clay Tippins, who we haven't talked about before. Um, but he's a, he's a new candidate in the governor's race. I hope that we can discuss policy proposals like these from everybody, because it is a good demonstration to me, at least of, you know, we're hiring somebody to do a job. And this is sort of an elongated job interview. And whether you agree or disagree on the the explicit details in the plan, you can at least see where Abrams' thinking is on this proposal and where some of her priorities are. And the fact that she is prepared to not only 
you know, set goals in terms of a broad thing like improving affordability of childcare, but it's something that is dialed into the existing structures that we have and how to improve those, make those better. There's a small detail here of of allowing parents who are currently looking for a job, they're not employed, but they're looking for a job to have access to childcare subsidies. And it's, it seems like something small. There's probably not a ton of parents in this position at any time, but it makes it so much easier to think about what job you're going to take and to be ready to take a job when it's offered to you if you already know that your child care is taken care of. And that's a detail that Abram's plan addresses in terms of trying to fill in the gaps of the existing system and understanding what those gaps are, understanding what policies are needed to fix those proposals you may or may not agree with every detail in this proposal, but it is good at least that her campaign is putting out detailed thoughts about what she intends to do um, and gives us a lot to work with to to evaluate her candidacy, her ideas, and what kind of governor she would be. And, and I hope that we see this from other candidates in this race. Um, but with that, I think we're going to leave this conversation there. This is going to be our final episode of the year. So Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays and a Happy New Year to all of our listeners out there. And thanks so much for being a part of this again. Uh, we're coming up on our third calendar year of doing this show. Our um, our It'll be our second legislative session that we're covering, but that's where our attention is going to turn in the new year. Um, so you hear a lot about us from that. And then we've got the midterms coming up next year and, and lots of exciting races, lots of exciting things to cover. Um, so we will talk to y'all in 2018. And until then, take care, y'all. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all. Thank you.